You are listening to Inside Healthcare, a podcast presented by NCQA. Hi again, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Inside Healthcare. I'm your host, Matt Brock. Today's show gives you the inside scoop on Quality Talks, just about six weeks away. It's happening April 21st, but you're going to want to sign up now. If you are not familiar, Quality Talks is a series of TED-style talks delivered by healthcare heavy hitters with a wealth of ideas on how to improve American healthcare. Our topics this year include emerging technologies, health equity, and care at home. And this year's event is a hybrid one. That means you can attend either online or in person at the Hamilton Hotel here in Washington. Go right now to qualitytalks.org to register for Quality Talks. You won't want to miss it. But first, let's give you a taste of what to expect. Today's show features an exclusive interview with one of this year's Quality Talks speakers. And for fun, we've cut some short clips from prior talks for your listening pleasure. First things first, though, let's meet Sami Inkinen. Sami Inkinen is CEO and co-founder of Verda Health, which provides a clinically proven treatment to safely and sustainably, that's the key there, reverse type 2 diabetes without medications or surgery, and with a high reliance on data and technology. By trade, Inkinen is not, or was not originally, a healthcare professional per se. He is a technologist, a venture capitalist, and a physicist by training. So, why start a healthcare company? Well, Inkinen is a fascinating guy. He already started a real estate company, Trulia, and sold it to Zillow for a fortune. Anyone else would have retired, but he decided instead to start another company, yes, a healthcare company, a diabetes-fighting healthcare company. And Sami will be speaking at NCQA's Quality Talks. He's here today to whet our appetite and to tell us a little bit about his journey and what we can expect in mid-April. 133 million American adults have either type 2 diabetes or prediabetes. 133 million. That's ridiculous. It's practically half of American adults today. It's just absolutely crazy. So my both belief and hope is at least two things will change uh, over the next, let's say, decade. One, the first one is easier. I do think that the kind of provider-led continuous remote care that Verda delivers for people with type 2 diabetes will become the norm. It doesn't make any sense that the disease that happens 24-7 a disease that needs sort of 24 seven support and behavior change support nutritionally is treated with two to four episodic visits per year with a doctor. It doesn't make any sense. So with technology, I think this kind of a continuous longitudinal care that we deliver is probably going to become the norm for type two diabetes and many other chronic diseases. So that's one prediction, which I'm very confident that's going to happen because it's already happening in many parts of the country. Uh, and then the second thing is, which is closer to what we do at Verda, or even closer, I should say, is really this concept that type two diabetes is not anymore a one-way street, progressive chronic disease leading into 
complications like amputations, kidney disease, and ultimately death. But it's actually reversible. And it's reversible nutritionally at any point of the journey, whether you are already on insulin or you're on earlier stage like pre-diabetes or just diagnosed type 2 diabetes. And unsurprisingly, the earlier you reverse it, the better it is for the overall health for the following decades and cheaper it is for taxpayers, health plans, and employers. So those are the two. The first one is a prediction. Second one is bold prediction and hope that we systematically treat type 2 diabetes as a reversible disease and not the way it's still seen today. That is a one-way street leading into all the bad stuff that comes from type 2 diabetes. The thing that is, is sort of interesting to me is you're not a healthcare professional by trade or, or by training initially. Yeah. You're an entrepreneur. You're a guy who builds companies. What were you thinking getting into healthcare? Yeah, well, first of all, you, you are absolutely right. I, I have a background that perfectly disqualifies me to be in healthcare. So I grew up on a farm in Finland. My parents did not even go to high school, not to even talk about graduation. And I, I studied physics and started my career in a nuclear power plant. And so none of those steps qualify you to do anything in U.S. healthcare, right? Um, and then, but I would say a common theme in my professional career for now, I guess, 30 years, frankly, um, or 20, 30 years has been technology and software. So the tool in my back pocket has been software. So that's the hammer. And then I've been looking for nails, how to use technology to to solve problems. And right after coming to US, so that was 2003, I co-founded this online real estate marketplace, Trulia, which you know then went public 2012 and now is, is part of Zillow Group. But that's an example where I and my co-founder and our team, we use technology to effectively put real estate professionals into your pocket. So we use software to transform the user experience in real estate. And so that's kind of been the theme in my professional career, using technology to, to solve meaningful problems to hopefully make people's lives better. I was always fascinated by health, like obesity, type 2 diabetes, all these big chronic diseases. But to me, it seemed like, like it seems for almost everyone, impossible, absolutely impossible. How do you solve it? People just don't do what they're supposed to do. They live unhealthy lives and they get chronic disease and all we can do is prescribe more medications. And that was my mindset, but it completely changed, like literally completely changed after I discovered that I was on my way to becoming type two diabetic myself. And also pre I, I was already pre-diabetic. Now that's not special, but what's special is that I won the world championships in triathlon right before that. So I was perfectly following, I guess, health guidelines in that I was exercising 10 hours a week. I was lean, you know, I was an athlete, yet I was on my way to becoming type 2 diabetic. So that kind of opened my eyes. I said, wait a second, this can't be just a disease of lazy people with no willpower, which embarrassingly was, was my thinking at the time. So long story short, from there, I 
stumbled a number of scientists who had been looking at diabetes and chronic disease and metabolism for decades. And, and they had discovered, which was kind of a lesser known piece of science, that actually chronic disease and type 2 diabetes is not a matter of how much you eat, but what you eat. And if you know the right protocols, you can actually even take a late stage type 2 diabetic person with type 2 diabetes and reverse the disease. And I, like, you know, my, I was rolling my eyes first saying, wait a second, like, we've been dealing with type 2 diabetes for three, four decades. If this was true, somebody would already be doing it. Like, is this really real? Can you reverse type 2 diabetes? But eventually I became convinced that the nutrition science was actually right based on the data and everything I saw. And then the, the missing piece of the puzzle was, how do you deliver a treatment that requires 24-7 support, behavior change, and then medication deprescription, like clinical support? How do you deliver that 24-7? So here's the connecting dot to my truly on real estate. We basically put real estate agents into your pocket through a smartphone. And I said, wait a second, laws are changing. We can do exactly the same in healthcare. We can put doctors and care team members into your pocket. That's how we can do and deliver effective 24 seven care. And so if your science works, let's combine this with a new way of delivering care. And we might be able to deliver diabetes reversal at scale. And that's when I thought, wait a second, there's no more thinking, no more calculating, no more spreadsheets. If this can be done, I've got to go and make it happen. But not only did you jump into healthcare, you jumped into probably one of the biggest issues facing healthcare, especially <laughs> in the United States, uh, certainly uh, pandemic proportions, uh, type two diabetes. And your solution is, frankly, somewhat simple, as opposed to all the things we've been doing. And I imagine, Sami, that you're going, you've, the more difficult part of this has been going against the tide, going against what has become a consensus over 30 years. Yeah. Um, tell me about that. Tell me about that challenge. Well, just to make the claim that type 2 diabetes can be reversed after our society and the world has been battling the disease for three, four, five decades, you know, it's outrageous, right? It's outrageous that there is a small, now mid-sized company in San Francisco, Colorado, in America, claiming that they can reverse type 2 diabetes. Uh, it, it sounds ridiculous, right? And so I, I would say the challenge is for us over the last seven, eight years have been one, obviously for us internally was just the building the thing, the treatment and the platform and to be able to do this at scale. Obviously that's not easy. That's challenging. But then the second challenge was really the market acceptance. Like how do you convince healthcare practitioners, business people and clinical people who've been in the industry for decades and have only seen diabetes getting worse in America and globally that there's a completely new way of addressing this disease. So that's actually been a really big challenge and, you know, brick by brick. But I would say our approach has always been data, 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 and evidence and publishing papers. And, you know, it's like brick by brick. You, you say, here's the data from our prospective clinical trial. Here's the data from a commercial customer. Look at it. 
Um, what do you think? And so, but that's definitely been a big challenge. Now, on a positive side, things have definitely changed quite a bit over the last seven years. And just last year, last August, the American Diabetes Association, very first time in the history of the whole organization, issued a consensus paper on type 2 diabetes remission and reversal, effectively saying, this is what it means, this is how it's possible, and this is how it can be achieved, which was kind of a huge thing. It's like admitting that the Earth is actually rotating around the sun, and sun's not rotating around the Earth. Like, literally, that is the level of discovery for type 2 diabetes, that it's actually a reversible disease. Well, I'll t- I can tell you this, uh, Sami. Uh, some of our listeners on our podcast have, have heard me talk about my own um, health journey, and it has included uh, type 2 diabetes. But I will tell you, I am no longer on any um, diabetes drugs. They took me off everything. Diet. Just diet and exercise got me there. My clinicians were more reluctant to go that route than I was. You understand? Because I worked in healthcare and I told uh, my clinicians throughout this process, I want to get off the pills. I want less pills, not more. Um, and, uh, and I feel like they were a little more reluctant than I was. So I think you're probably, that's, that's probably your biggest challenge in overcoming is sort of this, um, this consensus that has settled in. I'll, I'll defend the providers and doctors and primary care doctors a little bit in, in America in that I think practically all of them are very, very, very well-meaning. Mm-hmm. The challenge they have with type 2 diabetes is that they haven't seen historically anything to work other than prescribing more diabetes medications. And they don't have the tools. They can't deliver the 24-7 support that Verda, for example, delivers. They don't know the latest uh, nutritional protocols that actually allow you to reverse the disease without dieting and starving. And you can get through, this is shocking, you can get through Harvard Medical School with less than one hour of nutrition training today, and you become MD, medical doctor. Mm -hmm. That is mind-blowingly backwards. And so I think the PCPs are ridiculously well-meaning. They just haven't seen diabetes reversal nutritionally in action. They don't have the tools to do that. Their processes, even their economic model is fee-for-service. It just doesn't fit into, for example, what what we do at Verda. So I'll, I'll just briefly mention that we hear from PCPs constantly. When their patients go back to see them, you know, again, two, three times a year, their blood sugars are down. The patient is completely off of insulin, just as an example. There's tears and hugs between the PCP and the patient. And we hear from PCPs to our Verda providers saying, I can't believe, how is this possible? I've never seen this in my years of practice. And so everybody wants what's best for the patient. They just don't have the tools and means and ways to do that. And so now we can do that. Uh, So I'm very optimistic about the future, but a lot of things will need to change, not just Verda, our company to scale, but also to help PCPs have the tools to address diabetes in their own practice. Let's uh, go to quality talks and the actual event. And I I wonder, 
what you expect to speak about. I, I mean, I know you talk about what Bert is doing, and uh, and I think uh, one of your colleagues used the word evangelize about what you're doing. <laughs> what, what what can we expect to hear from you? Uh, because I think there's more to your story than just yeah, this is a big deal. You're going to fix you're going to fix uh, type two diabetes or make an impact there. Um, the bigger story too is that um, we're taking things that have worked elsewhere mm-hmm. and bringing them to this problem where we haven't been able to find a solution. So I wonder, you know, what do you expect to focus on in your talk? Yeah. Yes. So I'll, I definitely want to go beyond just type two diabetes reversal. I thought maybe there's three themes that could be helpful for all the listeners. One, give practical examples how bringing innovation to the U.S. healthcare market is ridiculously hard. And obviously, in Verda case, we had to innovate the treatment itself. But then we also had to innovate the care delivery model, the processes, the payment and economic model, just to be able to bring this innovation to market. So that's sort of the one area that could be applicable to any company, any business, just realizing how bringing innovation to market in U.S. healthcare is actually very hard if you have something new. And then uh, the, the second one is directly related to quality. And this may be surprisingly surprising to hear from a kind of a newer company in that we've actually made quality a company strategy, literally. And we track certain quality metrics. So I'm going to talk about like, how do you actually do that practically and not just say it on stage in a big event? Because we do that every day. And then the last one is, um, the third point to talk about is how we need to think about quality differently and quality measures differently, particularly in chronic disease care. Because today, if you reverse the disease, sometimes you actually show negative quality metric. How crazy is that? Like literally, oh, people stop taking medications. That's bad. Well, actually, it's not. So I'm, I'm going to give a couple of examples where sometimes well-meaning quality metrics actually prevent you from doing the exactly right thing. So I'm going to propose some ideas how to get out of that box. That's CEO and co-founder of Verta Health, Sami Inkinen. You can see and maybe even meet Mr. Inkinen at Quality Talks on April 21st again that address to sign up, qualitytalks.org. You don't want to miss it. Now let's take a quick swing at some clips from quality talks you may have missed from the past. Here's a short one from Dr. John Chuck. He's a Northern California-based family physician and consultant for healthcare professionals. Just last year, he delivered a compelling warning about clinician burnout and its impact on care quality. So once upon a time, things were really, really bad in American medicine. And I regret to inform you that that very, very bad time is now. You're well aware that in America, we spend more dollars per capita on healthcare than any country in the world. Yet our results are inconsistent and we have high rates of burnout among physicians. If you follow the literature of Tate Shanafelt, you will know that fully 45% of American physicians are burned out which means that they have one or more of the following three bad things. Number one, they're emotionally exhausted. Number two, they're depersonalizing their care. 
Or number three, they have feelings of low self-esteem. Professor Christina Moslock from UC Berkeley, the inventor of the Moslock burnout inventory, informs us that 9% of American physicians have all three at the same time. It's as if American physicians are playing Russian roulette with our patients, and three out of the seven chambers in the revolver are filled with live rounds. What are the implications of this burnout for the provision of quality care in America? Well, they're all bad. Imagine these three clinical scenarios. You take your child to the emergency room because she has a high fever and she's unresponsive. Or you are laying on the operating room table, your chest splayed open, ready for open heart surgery. Or finally, your elderly frail mother is getting end of life counseling from her friendly family doctor. In all of these high stakes scenarios, 45% of the physicians providing the care are burned out. And frankly, a small percentage of them are impaired. Many of the external drivers of burnout are beyond our control, but to paraphrase Cicero, we can survive the enemies at the gate, for they are known and they carry banners. It is the enemy from within who betrays us, his sly whispers rustling through the alleys of our mind. This enemy is born during our competitive pre-medical school years and grows into a monster during medical school, residency, and fellowship training. It teaches us that the only way to make the team and to stay on the team is to armor up and be perfect. Failure and vulnerability are unacceptable because they can lead to banishment from the kingdom. Imperfection becomes our kryptonite, our boogeyman, our dark lord who must not be named. We would rather die than be discovered as failures. And for this reason, three to 400 of my physician colleagues successfully kill themselves every year. Many more try and fail. Many, many more seriously consider doing it. Case in point, I was leading a four-hour wellness workshop for a group of physicians. And during the social hour, one of my colleagues approached me with a folded piece of paper. He said, this is a thank you note, but due to its highly personal and confidential nature, I prefer that you read it at home, which I did later that evening. And when I read it, I was shocked. I was floored. He said that five years prior, he had attended a one hour wellness talk that I gave. And as was my custom, I showed a picture of me and Marisa Pierce, my marriage and family therapist during a counseling session. And I recommended to the audience that they engage in a regular counseling relationship to keep them more right in the head, to stay in the game during their difficult medical careers. This colleague said that at that time, he was struggling mightily. He was going through a divorce, he had professional burnout, and he was seriously considering taking his own life. But the stigma associated with being a weak physician prevented him from doing that. He said it was my lecture that gave him the courage and permission he needed to seek the counseling that saved his career and saved his life. When I read this note, I had two immediate thoughts. The first was, I'm glad he finally did something to save himself. But the bigger, more troublesome thought I had was, how incredibly sick is the prevailing culture of medicine that somebody who is struggling and committing suicide feels like they need permission from a relative stranger to seek care? Well, the answer is that it's incredibly sick verging on toxic.
I hope you agree with me that we need to doff this armor up and be perfect mentality and don a newer approach to medicine that can sustain us during our 30 year plus careers. I suggest that we all subscribe to the Brene Brown School of Badassery. Brene Brown says that the modern day badass is the person who dares greatly and tells the truth about the experience rather than sugarcoating it. I would add that it's also important to dare greatly in collaboration with other team members and to reaffirm one another on the journey, which is bound to be rocky. Dr. John Chuck at Quality Talks 2021. Now, Sandro Galea, Dr. Sandro Galea, the epidemiologist and author, is Dean and Robert A. Knox Professor at Boston University School of Public Health. He spoke about our health system's limitations because it concentrates too much on treating the sick instead of keeping people healthy. We tend to think of our health system wrong and we are thinking too much about our health care and not enough about our health. Let me start making this argument by talking about a story, a personal story. I will start about when I was first a young doctor. I was trained to do primary care and acute care. And one of my earliest jobs was with Doctors Without Borders in Somalia. I was there soon after the country collapsed at the beginning of the Civil War. And I was in the Mudug region in Puntland, a bit northeast of Galkayo, the capital of Somalia. And I was there and I was dealing with patients coming into the emergency department day in, day out. And I was, as a physician, doing a lot of good. I was seeing people, helping people, making them get better. And every day, the longer I did that, the more disillusioned I got with what I was doing. I was the proverbial guy on the side of the river. And I would see people drowning and I would jump in and save them one by one by one. And I was never stopping for a second to say, who's throwing them in the river to begin with? Why are they falling in the river? Why are they drowning? And I realized that no matter how much I did, nothing was fundamentally going to change. That people were still going to be falling in the river and people were still going to be drowning. That is really what changed my thinking and moved me to thinking about public health. Because let me go back to COVID. Consider this. Black Americans have had about twice the risk of getting COVID compared to white Americans. They've also had about 1.5 times greater risk of dying from COVID than white Americans. The same is also true for many other people of color. Same is true for people with low income. Now, why is that? The data are pretty clear that once people have been within hospitals, their rates of survival from COVID have been roughly the same. Now, these differences that we've experienced in the past year are not because of our health system. They are because of the conditions in which we live. The differences in conditions between those of us as marked by our skin color or by our socioeconomic conditions. Now, let me illustrate that with another story. And I'm going to tell a story from two perspectives. I'll start with the doctor's perspective. The doctor, he's a good doctor, cares for his patients in medicine for all the right reasons. He's got degrees from all the right places. And one day in his office walks a 43-year-old woman, let's call her Judy. He knows Judy. He knows that she has heart disease and asthma and diabetes. When he sees Judy, he can tell right away that Judy is in respiratory distress because of COVID. He tries to help her, takes her into hospital, him and his, and his colleagues, they do the best possible things they know to help Judy. 
But COVID takes over, complicated by her underlying comorbidity. Judy gets worse and Judy dies of COVID. Now that's the story. Now let me tell you a story from a different perspective. Now from Judy's perspective. Judy was born 43 years ago in a not particularly wealthy part of town. She was born and raised in an apartment close to a bus depot. Her asthma was made worse by the diesel spewing buses that she was brought up around. She grew up eating not particularly good food, mostly because her parents couldn't really afford good, better food. But even if they could, she was in a food desert, which means there wasn't really food available for her. After she went to school, she took a series of low-paying jobs. She was a cashier at the supermarket when she developed COVID. She couldn't exactly work from home to be a cashier at the supermarket. She was exposed to COVID. She got COVID. And of course, COVID intersected with her underlying comorbidity. By the time she went to see her doctor, it was too late. And Judy died. Now, the story is joined by the fact it's the story of the same person. But there are substantial differences. The story for the doctor began when Judy walks into his office. The story for Judy began 43 years ago. When you hear that story, I think it's difficult to argue that the conditions of Judy's life did not have anything to do with her health. And I think we can see why. No matter how much money we pour into the treatment of Judy when she's 43, we're ultimately fighting a losing battle against the conditions of Judy's life for the 43 years that came before there. All of which brings me then to how must we change? What do we need to do to change how we think about healthcare and how our system is structured to help the Judies of the world? That was Dr. Sandro Galea spoke at Quality Talks 2021 as well. Now, Dr. Neka Cedarstrom, she's Chief Health Equity Officer for Hennepin Healthcare in Minneapolis. You've probably heard her on this very show. In her 2017 Quality Talks appearance, she talks about death. It's not as dark as you might think, really. It's about how we care for those who are dying and how ethics and compassion and quality all go hand in hand. We pay attention to mortality rates and understand patient goals of care. We've integrated palliative care and hospice into mainstream medicine. We call ethics consults when things get complicated. We know that dying is a thing. So why don't we work towards the goals of dying patients? Goals like to be free of pain and relieved of suffering and the burden of disease. Goals to die peacefully at home, surrounded by loved ones. Goals to have death be embraced as a natural end of life. To understand where we need to go, we first have to take a quick look of where we are. Studies have shown that approximately 80% of Americans want to die at home. But despite this, 60% die in hospitals, 20% die in nursing homes, and about 20% get to die at home. Cost of care in the last year of life is five times the cost of an acute event for our Medicare populations. We all are aware that the cost of health care is a problem in this country. With data that show that inpatient hospital care accounted for the largest per capita spending for Medicare and for decedents, and that that spending was seven times higher than the spending for Medicare survivors, one must think there isn't a better way. Medicine is now more business and less art. We advertise our successes, banners, 
We work hard at branding and making our hospitals household names. We want to be seen as the hospital where you can come for help. We spend a lot of marketing dollars on commercials and billboards and flyers that hang from buildings that proclaim to the general population, we are where you need to come. Let us take care of you. With all the work that is being done to make patients and families feel like the only good outcomes happen at our facilities, I can understand why a hospital doesn't want a banner hanging from their tallest building proclaiming, hey, we do death the best. <laughs> I think that's pretty appealing. Sure, right? The dying is this small population of the hospital that rarely happens. Nobody understands that. It's a weird phenomenon that only happens to people over there. I mean, statistically speaking, the last time it was studied, all the patients died, so I don't think you can get NIH funding for those numbers. <laughs> and I checked it, I looked it up. The world death rate for 2015 was 100%, but they're still tallying the numbers for 2016, so I'll keep you posted. Instead, this is how we die. Alone, surrounded by strangers, with lines, tubes, machines, and various other apparatuses forcing our continually failing bodies to comply. We've done a bad job at death. We have done a great job at developing technology to fight illnesses and disease. But when that technology goes from curative to organ function substituting technology, it's imperative to rethink its use. Let's be clear, even after all is said and done and all this technology is used, no one gets out of life alive. Dr. Neka Cedarstrom. Finally for you, an unexpectedly humorous story of challenge and survival. Retired U.S. Army Staff Sergeant Travis Mills served three tours in Afghanistan before losing most of both legs and arms to an IED of the over 34,000 soldiers that were wounded in Iraq and Afghanistan. He is one of only five who survived as a quadruple amputee. He turned his experience of survival into a life of advocacy for healing strength and technological advances in prosthetics. So I'm gonna tell you guys how my legs kind of work. When I started walking, I was very weak. I went from 250 pounds, right, six foot three, to like three foot six, something like that. <laughs> Cut off at the knees, I know, it's crazy. And I had to regain everything. I went from 250 to 140 pounds. So when you look at the screen, on the left side, you're gonna see my short legs. Those are the first ones you get. When you get taller, you get the ones on the right. The ones on the right, that's just gravity, okay? They don't do anything special, but when you trip, you just fall harder, right? The ones I'm wearing now, are microprocessors. They have four distinct functions. The first thing is, they're little computers. Every time I move, internally 300 adjustments get made to keep me as upright as possible. That's pretty exciting stuff when you're me. I also can slow myself down going down a jetway. They have hydraulic brakes with pistons. So when I get walking down a jetway, I don't go bowling for people. <laughs> yeah. Granted, sometimes somebody will cut me off, and I'm like, oh, I can't stop, you know. Yeah, no, it's too, yeah, it's too bad. Um, 
And she's always like, oh, my hip. You know, she's, I don't know why, but Ruth in her 80s is rude. Rude. They have Bluetooth connectivity. So I can lock my legs to 25 degree angle so I can drive my vehicle like everybody else. And the last thing is they're waterproof. So if I'm out in the rain and I get caught in a storm, I don't got to worry about my legs breaking and trying to find cover. They just, they don't, they, uh, they don't um, get broken with the water. Now the next thing, ladies and gentlemen, is my hand. And this thing's the coolest thing in the world. On the screen, you're going to see the most important hand that I own right there. It's not the one I'm wearing. No, that one. That one's called a Greifer. That hand is in a Crown Royal bag on the top shelf of my closet. Yeah. And nobody touches that hand because that hand closes 25 pounds of pressure. And then when it's done, you can close it again, 35 pounds of pressure. And you see, my daughter is nine or seven years old. Yeah, in nine years, Johnny's going to come knocking at the door. Yeah. And he's going to be like, hey, bro. <laughs> like, did you just bro me, Johnny? That's 25 pounds of pressure. He's like, oh, dude, that hurts. Johnny, there's no strike two and three. This is two and three right here. Crunch. I break his hand. I know, sad. He's like, let me go. Let me go. I pull Johnny close. I don't let him go. No. I say, Johnny, guess what? I don't know what. No fingerprints, Johnny. <laughs> Remember that, Johnny. So that's a quick look at Quality Talks. Uh, don't forget, you want to go sign up, qualitytalks.org. Now we're going to turn to a new feature in our podcast. We'll call it Fast Facts. And each episode, we'll try and bring you some facts that add to our discussion for the week. You heard Sami Inkanen talk about his work fighting diabetes, both personally and professionally. Well, here are some numbers, updated numbers from the CDC on diabetes. A total of 37.3 million Americans have diabetes. That's more than one in 10 people in the US. And of that number, eight and a half million people are undiagnosed. They have it and they don't even know it. Beyond that, 96 million people in the US, age 18 or older, are pre-diabetic. That's about 38% of all adults in the United States. All right, finishing up, NCQA is always working hard to expand discussions and training on every aspect of quality assurance in the healthcare world. We have our annual Quality Innovation Series. That's a series of webinars hosted by our education team. There are over 20 presentations from in and outside NCQA held online over a period of two months. Registration is open now with special pricing until April 3rd. And we have our Digital Quality Summit in July. The virtual mid-July summit is co-sponsored by HL7 and features speakers and breakout sessions discussing every angle of measurement, data exchange, and what to do with the evidence once we've got it. And we have a brand new event this year, NCQA's Health Innovation Summit. It's live in person from October 31st through November 3rd. You wanna save that date this will be the place to connect with quality and care delivery innovators from throughout the healthcare world. From health equity to value-based care, no aspect of quality will go untouched for this event. With speakers, training sessions, and an exhibit showcase floor, you won't want to miss. So look for that. Save the date again, October 31st, Halloween through November 3rd. And again, registration is open for Quality Talks 2022. You can be there live at the Hamilton Hotel in DC 
or virtually major topics this year, emerging technologies, health equity, and care at home. Register now before all the seats run out. They are limited. Go to qualitytalks.org. Now, that's a lot, but that's our episode for Inside Healthcare this week. On behalf of producer Dave Smolar and the entire communications team at NCQA, I'm Matt Brock. We'll see you again, no doubt. You've been listening to Inside Healthcare, a podcast brought to you by NCQA, the National Committee for Quality Assurance. Inside Healthcare is available on your computer or mobile device through Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and on our blog at blog.ncqa.org forward slash podcast.